Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham, coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, a city with tons of museums. I live in downtown Ottawa. There are, I don't know, six, seven museums within walking distance of me. And and if you're like me, you go to a museum, you look at the objects, you read the panels, and you think that's interesting, and I'm glad I came, and I learned something today. Hooray. But what I usually don't think about when I'm at a museum is the process through which that information was collected and how the museum understands its own collection and the objects that are in there and how they go about cataloging it. It's not necessarily the most exciting thing to think about when you're in a museum, but the process through which items are cataloged and material culture becomes data is very influential. And anyone who's ever worked with a database, even a little bit, I don't have extensive experience with it, but I've done it a little bit, you learn that the terms that you use, the way that you frame the information in the catalog in the database kind of influences how you think about it. And if you take that the next step further, it's going to influence the way you present it and therefore the way people consume that information. And that process hasn't gotten a lot of attention. And again, it's not front of mind for visitors at a lot of these museums, but very much influences the way that they interact with museum collections, museum exhibits, and the information that they learn. And that is the subject of a new book by Hannah Turner. It's called Cataloging Culture, Legacies of Colonialism in Museum Documentation. And in this book, she focuses on the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History and looks at how information was processed by the museum and the legacies of that as part of a colonial process. Fascinating book, really interesting. I was really excited to get into this book, as you could probably tell (laughs) during the interview. Uh, I, I find this stuff super fascinating. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Hannah Turner. Okay, and Hannah Turner joining us all the way from Vancouver today, back in her office. Exciting times <laughs> out stage three in British Columbia. Hannah, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, really looking forward to getting into the book. But before we get into the book proper, I'm curious to ask you about this because you know, on the show we've had a few folks who have come on who have who've had this happen where you put all this time into a book, you do all the research, all the writing, all the editing, so much work goes into it. And then in the case of your book, it comes out, the the release date is July 15th, 2020, which, you know, in normal times, that would be maybe a a launch or two, some some talking engagements, maybe a, a party to celebrate. But this comes out, of course, in the midst of everything going on. So what has that experience been like for you with the book coming out in the midst of this global pandemic? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Yeah, it's been weird. I mean, it feels like it should just take a backseat to everything that's going on. And so I haven't been super active in promoting it, really, or doing any of the, I guess, normal work you're supposed to do around a book launch. 
but there, you know, there are a few things. We'll be like doing a probably a virtual launch sometime in November potentially. So yeah, it's weird. I mean, I I really feel strongly that I want an in person <laughs> book launch. I want people to come and I want to maybe interview someone, but we'll see if that ever gets to happen. Yeah, it's 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 so tough, right? Like, and there's no way to plan for this, right? This release date would have been set at least six months ago, at like at least, right? Oh, yeah, maybe even longer. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah, there's just no way. There's no way to know. But, yeah, hopefully things you know continue to progress and we can have uh, some sort of an event to celebrate the, the accomplishment. So let's get into the book. And material culture is something that I'm particularly interested in, in part because I talk okay. about it in some of the courses I teach, but also because it's something that whenever I read something new about it, I feel as though I, I learn more and I get more excited about the topic. So... One of the things that, that I find really interesting about this book is the initial question that gets presented in the, the UBC synopsis of it is, how does material culture become data? And I, I think that's a, a really fascinating place to start because at least historians were trained to look at written documents, right? And the materiality, it's something that, that comes up more and more in methodology courses, but it's not something that is at necessarily at front of mind in a lot of methodology courses. And we are trained to take our data from written words and perhaps sometimes at a detriment. So what is it about materials and the, the material culture that is so useful in using it as a source of data? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. So I really like what you said about methodology and thinking about historians, method methodology of history, because I just like as a disclaimer, I'm not a historian. I yeah. kind of <laughs> fell into being a historian because I had to look at a lot of archival documents and do this. I, I wrote essentially a history, as you must know. Um, but it had me thinking a lot about the role, what's different, right, about potential doing ethnography and versus sort of a strict history. So that I think when you say that in my book, there is a lot of focus on the methodology of material culture studies, which has been this field that is often associated directly with the uh, burgeoning um, field of anthropology, right? Mm -hmm. Where anthropologists in the you know 18, eight, late 1800s, really in the mid 1800s were taking mid 1800s were taking objects as evidence instead of just text. So I think that's what makes them different and it made that field sort of come into itself, I guess, from the earlier natural history, ethnology, sort of attempts at understanding the world. Um, so that's kind of what I was interested in most is this, what does it mean when we make objects evidence and what kinds of assumptions are present in that sort of maneuver, as I say. Part of that is or to me at least, it, there's a. I like that you said you did archives because someone's going to yell at me for the way I framed historical methodology before. <laughs> but um, one of the things that that gets talked about by archivists and historians too is that so much of what's there is dictated by just what was saved, what was chosen to be saved, and also who was writing stuff. Right? Archives, written archives, are dictated based on who had textual records who wrote stuff down and so when we look back it's usually certainly people in power obviously people who are literate would would be the ones writing so there's a selectivity there that is inherent just in the object that you're choosing to 
preserve in an archive. And it strikes me that there is a parallel there between material culture as well. Yeah, that's exactly true. And actually in the book, it's kind of what I'm trying to document or understand historically. And obviously it's, it's really hard to do that because you don't have everything right. <laughs> in the archival record. So in some ways, um, but there's, there's been a lot of work in this area, right? Trying to reconstruct the kinds of, um, not thought processes, but um, historical moments where material culture became important and what kinds of things were collected and kept and why. And really in my book, looking at the Smithsonian, I think I always have to contextualize that this is part of American history, right? It's a very American way of looking um, at the issue of material culture and preservation. And certainly in Europe and even in Canada, potentially, there are different histories. Um, so, so yeah, I think in, in that sense, you know, it's American, uh, it's a national institution, it has that um, framework. And when it was created as the Smithsonian Institute, which was really from a bequest from James Smithson, so like one guy, <laughs> it was enacted into law uh, in the United States. And so they were like, we are going to have an American National Museum to be, you know, to really prove that we're a real nation state. Right. And so in that moment, so you get a kind of different collection, really, because in that moment, while that's being defined, so too is other sciences. So, you know, Natural history I spoke about, you know, meteorology, geology, all of these things are sort of coming into being in North America in particular. And so um, material culture then at that time, a lot of it was from battlefields. There was quite a few human remains um, that were just transferred from the Army Medical Museum, which was really the human remains collected from uh, battlefields in the States and deposited right into the National Museum. So you get this sort of different kind of collection, if that makes sense. Um, than you might other places. And so those frameworks, the idea of the nationalism, uh, the idea of what it meant to be an ethnologist at the time and what kind of objects they were looking for, is like I take up a lot in the first, really two chapters of my book because it's very interesting. Well, how much of what the Smithsonian is doing, you mentioned it, like the that the museum is there to basically legitimize the nation and say, we have a national history. How much of that is based off of not only collecting certain objects, but also potentially omitting certain objects that are not seen as part of this national collection? It's a little unclear in the early days of the institution. So like mid 1800s, you have um, a whole Basically, ethnology is considered part of the science, part of one of the sciences, the human sciences. So I guess the other thing I'll just interject here is that both it's about becoming a national institution and sort of um, proclaiming that, but also a scientific institution. And I think that's really important. The understanding of what science was at that time and how it worked gets directly applied to the study of human beings. Um, and that obviously, as we know, throughout history has various ramifications all over the world, um, most of them quite racist. But I think it became very clear that there was a particular kind of material culture that was of interest uh, to science. And that's how you kind of get the early collections. You also, so for example, there's a focus on um, archeological objects, there's a focus on really sort of um, mundane objects as well, right? Where you get uh, sort of an early anthropological take on how to understand people, right? Through their things. 
There's also a focus on languages, which I don't go into the book so much, but there's other people who've written about it. I think of Brian Hockman's um, book, Savage Preservation, and he's looking at language, pre language preservation in particular, the history of that. And so language is really important, and then material culture is just generally really important. But things that are omitted are things that people maybe refused to give or let go of, right? So there are cases of that as well. Um, but those are hard to find in the archi archival record, which I kind of say in my book, right? It's, it's not easy to find omittances. <laughs> right, because why would, you, why would you keep that? <laughs> why, why would you write that down and keep that? Exactly. So what, what I couldn't, can do is look through what are called the circulars or the collecting guides, which are these sort of guides that were sent to U.S. Navy officers, Canadian um, people working in Canada as well, and sometimes amateur collectors to sort of specify these desiderata or desired things is the translation of that. And so those things are, in the beginning, they focus pretty much on uh, animal specimens, right? And human beings in particular are slotted into the sort of animal category. Mm -hmm. So the remains of human being. And then that sort of deviates as there's becomes a sort of grown up understanding that, oh, there's like an entire, you know, uh, there's material goods that people are producing and exchanging and making. And I think what gets lost is people at that time, at least early ethnologists, were trying to really say, right, so this, if you know anything about the history of anthropology, this is pre-Boazian anthropology, which essentially says, you know, there's like an, an essential culture of a people, and we will collect that essential thing. So I think scholars have looked at items that had been traded or that were maybe like modernized, right? get avoided in particular ways or omitted from the record because they don't present the sort of authentic vision of what they saw as, you know, dying cultures at the time. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, that, that stuff is really interesting and the sort of object categories that really start at the Smithsonian and then kind of get outsourced to other institutions throughout the 1800s and early 1900s as well. So as the Smithsonian is going and collecting these items and, and having things come in and undergoing the scientific research, how much contact do they have with the communities or experts in the various communities who maybe know more about the provenance of the objects than they would themselves? So there's a variety of things happening at different time periods. But early on, I guess in the mid-1800s, here we're thinking like 1830s, 40s, 50s, uh, very little in the sense that objects would come in and train cars to the museum and they'd arrive with maybe a packing slip that described the objects. That might just be a quick note or a list. And then maybe there was some correspondence between a curator and someone who was working in the field. And like I said, these people in the cases I looked at were U.S. Navy officers who had like an interest uh, in local communities they were living in or sailing by or whatever. So um, so it would have been correspondence uh, with sort of that, that, that point person in the field, I guess. Um, and then in some occasions, and I sort of document this in one of my chapters, some of those people would actually come to the institution to do some of the what they called working up of the objects, which is cataloging, documentation, and registration, which is sort of the focus of the middle half of my book. Um, and those are those are probably rare situations, but you'd have someone who is actually doing the collecting then come back to the institution to spend, I don't know, a lot of time <laughs> describing the objects and all that kind of stuff. 
But then as you move and you get this model where there are ethnologists, people who are sort of practiced and in, in interested in going out into, quote, the field to do things like conduct oral histories or understand, you know, this very sort of old idea of anthropology, um, you would have uh, anthropologists and ethnologists themselves sort of coming and doing some of that work, or the curators would be going out to do it as well. But that's much later on. Um, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. There's a really good book um, by Margaret Bruchak. I don't know if you know it, called Savage Kin that came out maybe a few years ago. And she details the indigenous uh, white settler relationships around ethnography that were happening and how those white settlers or those, you know, whoever was going into the field, ethnologists, natural historians, um, how they got access to communities and the sort of gatekeeping that the communities themselves were doing around access to information. It's absolutely fascinating. So I highly recommend that. Now, you, you mentioned that the, the sort of that early on process. And one of the things that's interesting to me about the book is that, you know, today the Smithsonian is kind of held up as, you know, a premier institution that at least as someone who's not directly involved in museum studies and museology or anything like that, you know, I look at it as a, a really respectable institution. But I'm curious to know how much of that early process that you're talking about, how much is that served to basically create a formula through which not only the Smithsonian operates, but because it develops this reputation, gets almost farmed out to other museums, not only perhaps in the United States, but maybe internationally. Like how influential is this process that the Smithsonian is coming up with early on? So I think fairly influential. It's it's really hard to trace the origins of a system. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but in the case of the Smithsonian, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit, I guess, about cataloging, because that's really the focus. Of, I mean, it's in the title, but which is sort of the process of museum objects being described and documented in like ledger books, and then eventually in the card catalog. So what you have is this sort of material technology or this technology system that comes um, directly from the library, the like library at the Smithsonian, or they're using card catalogs, um, and sort of gets applied and used in the institution by one of the curators. So in that sense, that technology, I guess you could say, of the card catalog or the card index you know, we'd seen or it's been seen earlier in Europe. So there's clear dialogue happening between the curators in America and in, and in the European museums as well. Um, but it's sort of haphazardly used. And actually those that origin, the way, because it's been so haphazardly used across the world, there's no real standards of um, what we would call like documentation standards, as you would see in libraries where you have a Dewey de Decimal System and a Library of Congress subject headings, right, which are kind of more standard ways of describing things, as right. in this case, books. But museums don't have that in part because of this history. It was quite distributed. And so now when you do any kind of data work with museums or try and share data between institutions, you get into this problem that they have completely different ways of organizing information. But in the States, I think this particular individual, Otis Mason, the curator, and his adoption of the card catalog before his death and quite early on in the history of card catalogs, as far as I can tell, and museums, this gets um, sort of outsourced to other institutions, or at least they learn from it. But I don't have like direct evidence of that. You can just see the dates of when other card catalogs come into existence and let's say the Field Museum or something like that. Right. So I'm happy to be proved wrong about that, but um, <laughs> that's, my, that's my sense. 
it's really hard to craft a timeline of that without doing years and years and years and years of research. But yeah, and I think it's I think it's really important to consider that. The other thing I'll say is like now the Smithsonian is yeah, it's a great institution. I mean, to the extent we can call institutions wonderful. I mean, they do a ton of wonderful research, really, and have, a, you know, just lots of programs. There's a Recovering Voices program. Um, they have one of the largest repatriation offices in the country that is really progressive um, in some ways. And they're doing a lot of work, right, around mm -hmm. this. And it's not, and I sort of, if I find I leave this till the end of the book. But um, it's true that there's a lot of great work going on at that institution. And of course, the Smithsonian is, you know, 13 plus museums large. So we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of researchers. But some of the legacies that I sort of point to in the book around cataloging, whether it's the card catalog and the terms used on that, but also the work process, right? So the actual practice of doing it is often left to inexperienced I mean, these are direct quotations. Inexperienced uh, workers, like me they're considered menial tasks to be done by uneducated people. So this language that um, is used in really like the late 1800s to the 1900s, firstly, that's all women, right, in the late right. 1800s. There's um, secretaries, there are people, women doing all the writing, all the documentation, the actual like transcribing of things, as far as I can tell. And then that kind of basically has mutated into the structure of where there's a separate curatorial department and then there's a cataloging and registration department where there's the people who are, you know, don't necessarily have PhDs and who are doing different kind of work, which is really seen as a, as a mundane task. And so the argument I'm trying to make is that it's not <laughs> and that this is kind of, this is intellectual work. So I try and problematize that throughout maybe, um, not successfully, but I think it's really important. It means the ramifications of the idea that there being like people who do the paperwork and people who do the real intellectual work, right? The separation ramifications of that is funding has just been eradicated from the cataloging and registration departments at many institutions. And it's kind of thought of as like the last thing that mm. people that fancy funders want to give money to, right? They're more interested in exhibits or I'm assuming putting their names on things. I'm not totally sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I think um, so in terms of that legacy of the actual cataloging work, I think that's really important in part because now, as we know, with um, recent repatriation um, debates, not debates, but like repatriation um, uh, things that are happening in the world in terms of thinking of the SAR Savoy report, which was um, about the return of African materials that were stolen. Um, actually doing provenance research and actually understanding the history of collection is going to be really, really important um, for the ability to return under these sort of systems that we're in now. It, it kind of reminds me of a book by Cynthia Enlow, the full title of which always escapes me, but I, it has something to do with what is considered real work. And right. you know what she argues is that basically through all of human history, uh, women's work or work that women did was not considered real, right? It didn't count uh, in sort of yeah. this larger socioeconomic scale that people would judge stuff by. And this is sort of the same thing, right? What is considered real mm -hmm. is the scientific work done by the folks in the lab coats and stuff. Whereas the, this, I mean, it, it's interesting that, you know, as anybody who's ever used, whether it's a card catalog or now an online database, if, if there's a good one, you want to find who did it 
and just give him a big <laughs> hug. Well, you can't give him a hug now, but like a, a socially distanced virtual hug right. because no, having, right. having a quality database is so important. Yes, it is. It's also <laughs> incredibly complicated, but yeah, right. you're absolutely right. And I think, I think that work of, and also like re-catalog. I mean, there are projects, there are probably objects in that institution that still need to be reconciled right, yeah. <laughs> an earlier inventory from the eighties. So, um, yeah, I do think it's important. Um, but there's so many other things going on, you know, databases, as we know, especially if they're online generally means you have some kind of agreement with a large software company. And so that's a whole other can sure. of worms, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Uh, now, and you mentioned the repatriation of, of items. One of the things that is interesting to me, too, in terms of looking at provenance of, of items is just terminology, right? And, and when you're searching for stuff and the way it's cataloged and, you know, terminology from late 19th century to today on certain items is going to be very, very different. And that's one of the things, too, that, you know, in, in coming up with a database, that's got to be really hard for folks to, to be thinking about. But in, in terms of the, the colonization side of it, how has or has the, the vocabulary and wording influenced the way in which objects are not only sorted, but then thought about as parts of the collection? This is a great question, and this is kind of like a key point. So I'm really interested in terminology um, in part because, I mean, we use language to describe things, right. <laughs> so it's important. Um, but also because the history of naming, and I, I go into this quite a bit in the book, is really, I mean, it's political, right? To name something describes it, it as being in relation with other things. So this comes from studies in ontology um, and epistemology. And so trying to understand what those um, sort of uh, ideas or normalized ideas about the world are just by looking at at hierarchical classification schemes in an institution is really interesting, um, I think. But um, yeah. and, and there's similar moves going on. So there's a lot of people who do study this kind of stuff, taxonomies and naming in libraries in particular. So the subject headings, for example, are incredibly political at the Library of Congress. And there's been a lot of debate around, you know, there was a great documentary about whether or not illegal aliens should be a subject heading instead of undocumented um, immigrant. And so there's these really, you know, you can see immediately that this is a political thing. So in museums, it's, it's a little bit more, um, it's, it's a little different, right? You have these really old ideas about what a culture is and what counts as a culture. And often that was decided by early ethnologists and anthropologists. And at the Smithsonian, um, the debate basically throughout the history of that institution around what culture terms to use. I mean, it's ongoing, right? right. Because one of the issues that comes up is that there are historical names um, that had been attributed to groups of people or lands or territories that are no longer used. Yet those, his those histories uh, are important to understand, especially if you're doing repatriation or any kind of um, looking back through the provenance of an object because it can signal a different maybe part of the land that it came from or a different sort of um, subgroup, for example. Uh, so that can be useful in research. Um, so that's one of those issues that sort of is seen as the sticking point where it's like, well, we don't want to get rid of all of this historical terminology, even if it is racist, because it has like a useful purpose. Right. And I think you can push back against that um, easily, maybe. 
But uh, yeah, at the Smithsonian and, and really in North America in general, there was uh, something called the human relation area files, which I don't know if you've had time to look into this history. <laughs> yeah, it's a great it's, a, it's just a great name of a file, I have to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's research project number two, but basically the, it's called the Harath. <laughs> and so this is this is a list of of, cult, of culture terms from all over the world with short descriptions. I remember in my early anthropology classes, like needing to go in to the Haraf, <laughs> the human relation era, and, and look for a culture and be like, okay, what do people dress like? What do they eat? You know, these really um, simplified, I guess you could say, uh, descriptions. Not to say it's not useful, but this is, it's a really, really old classification system. And now it's held at Yale, I believe, in the library. So there's something called the eHaraf, <laughs> which you can Google and look at. And it can be a useful resource. And I, I, it was developed in part by, um, or out of the scheme developed by this guy named George Murdoch. And these are really old ideas, like I was saying, that kind of just end up sticking around. So those culture terms from the Ihiraf get kind of used directly in this project called the Handbook of North American Indians, which is a whole other can of worms. But it's, it was a project developed by um, a curator named William Sturdivant, who I write about in one of my chapters, um, to kind of document as best they could the North American Indian cultures. Right. So using this idea that there are particular cultures, we can document them. Right. These are assumptions um, and to kind of make a record. So there's been a lot of work on this project and it was a, supposed to be like this 13 volume series on everyone in North America. And the terms used in that book are the ones that become used as the culture terms in the database at the Smithsonian. So there's a lot of learning and sharing of information, but it all kind of originates in these really sort of old school culture term classifications. Right. Um, but these are shifting cat. I mean, this is the problem with a database. You need actual metadata <laughs> to be able to search something, but things shift and change over time. And how do you deal with that in a system that's essentially closed, right? It's yeah. very complicated technically as well as um, sort of ethically, I guess. Sure. And and I guess that's part of the question about relationships, too, that, you know, early on, if if you're generating positive relationships with people in the field and, and certainly say on with indigenous communities who can provide you know, traditional names for things and, and, you know, that traditional provenance for stuff, it could be useful. But at the same time, in the late 19th century, if I'm creating this database, no one's going to be searching for those particular terms, right? The, like anyone who's coming to this museum yeah. is going to be searching in all likelihood for the colonized version or the colonized terminology. So it's really hard to, to at the, in that moment, I would think, it'd be hard to create a database to satisfy every potential use for the information. Yeah, this is absolutely true. And so I think when you look at these museum databases or anything that you, any system, database system you look at, you have to understand that there's a history. And I think partly why I wrote this book is to be like, well, this is the history. <laughs> so you can sort of understand why and we can, and we can sort of undo some of the authority that I think is so readily given to these institutions as if this is just data. It's just, it, that's what it is. 
it's fact. (laughs) It comes from these documents and to show that those were also contextual and socially mediated and created. And there was a lot of conversation and I think is really important. But the other thing I'll say is like everyone who works in institutions in these institutions knows this, right? They know this history because they live it every day. (laughs) And so it was a bit weird to write a book where it's like you're working on something with a group of practitioners who are doing the work. Uh, trying to repair those things and encountering what one of my collaborators and and women I interview in the book calls like these boxes, right? You just have to fit stuff into boxes, which I think is such an interesting metaphor for the museum in general, but also this moment of like trying to record and preserve information. The other thing I'll say is there's a whole other group of, of indigenous scholars, in particular information scholars who are working to sort of dismantle these things as well and to recatalog and work on preserving information in their home communities from their own specific ways of understanding and seeing the world. So there's tons of of wonderful work um, in that area. So it's it's important to sort of see the difference between like institutional, national institution, (laughs) settler institution, and then all of the other kinds of work that are going on in communities and in tribal nations, et cetera. But how then do we try to, or can we even try to reconcile those two things? Like that you have these institutional ones and, you know, as we've talked about, so much legitimacy comes from the institution, uh, certainly with the public uh, and people who, who imagine what history is and, and what museums are, right? That, that name of the Smithsonian, just museums in general, people tend mm-hmm. to trust them, whereas... Mm-hmm community leaders regardless of what the community is don't have that the, the weight behind their name the same way as a museum does and you know it it seems like there's an inherent conflict almost there in the mind mm. of the public as they are going to be visiting these places and encountering these objects and these databases the way in which that they've been created that you sort of there's almost this inherent bias towards the institution despite the problems that you've identified. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a few things. So I think these are issues that are so big and very (laughs) much related, very much related to the return of land and the serenity of land. And so, you know, that's one aspect. It's like, yes, we need to restructure how society works ultimately. But until we do that, and there's lots of people working hard on that, But I think, um, I mean, I I really do believe that there's a place for public education. uh, And I think museums are pretty uh, captivating for people. And so I feel that they're important to consider, right? So I think at the end of my book, I come to this exact same conclusion, which is like, well, what do we do, do, right? We have a historical system, and you could expand this to almost anything that exists, but we have this historical thing that we need to change. And then, in fact, the other thing that's happening is that you know museums have all these collections and objects and belongings from communities and all over the world and you know some of those things may not have lasted the mm. way they have in institutions and so that's something that is difficult to contend with because they become important right especially if you're doing language recovery um, so early language records or even to look for for example your grandfather's blanket or box or whatever it is so I think um, it's easy to say, oh, this is all bad, and this is all good, but it's very complicated. So what do I think? I think uh, repatriation and return and providing funding should be the main main thing we look at now moving forward. 
Um, you know, I look at the, what's happening with the monuments and this sort of destruction, quote unquote, of monuments um, from slavery that have been happening this summer. And it's, you know, this sort of this sort of weird debate. It's not really a debate, but people sort of arguing that, oh, our history is being lost. And it's like, well, no. Right, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you want your history to be this man, <laughs> this slave owner? <laughs> so, no. So I think reparation can be like um, radical, actually. I don't think it'll be changing a database. I don't think that will be the radical. Right, yeah. <laughs> but I do think I do think it's important to sort of just uh, just to know that the information you are seeing <laughs> and what you take to be true um, is is much more complicated. <laughs> so I guess right. that's that's just the first step, maybe. Right. <laughs> maybe you don't have an answer. And you're right. It's sort of global. I mean, I'm almost reminded too. There, there are cases of Jewish families who are who have sued to get paintings that mm-hmm. were quote unquote sold as families fled the Holocaust in, in Europe during the Second World War, and, and they've sued saying that these, these paintings were taken under duress. And courts have said, mm-hmm. well, no, that wasn't duress because. Like there wasn't a Nazi soldier right there with a gun in your face. And you're like, what? Uh, like, how, how does that make sense? But it, it, it does speak to a larger issue, uh, to me at least, with these institutions who have objects like this. Uh, and similarly, this museum, the, the Smithsonian Museum has objects that, that are probably best positioned or best placed, not in the Smithsonian, but a concern that people have that I think might be related to the the monument question, and, and I, I've, on the, I've said this on the show before, but take all statues down, like just just take them yeah. all, like all of them. Like, and when you say <laughs> even this person, yeah, even that person, uh, t- <laughs> take them down. But what I what I would fear with the Smithsonian, at least, that if an object is taken away from the collection, that the information about that object goes with it and gets taken out of the database. And then you have the erasure within that database, not necessarily of the, or not just of the object, but also of that colonial story that you've identified in here, that it was taken, it was identified like this, and now it's gone. I I think there's value in in preserving that story so that the colonial process through which these objects went is remembered in a in proper historical context, right? We don't want to forget the way in which objects were treated and the colonial processes through which they were, were placed within the structure of this national museum. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And I do think, I mean, obviously I think history is important and knowing and not erasing the, the kinds of colonial sort of erasures and oppressions, you know, it's like a double yeah. erasure is, is important. But I also think that um, people forget very easily and quickly in particular um, communities and cultures and societies do, <laughs> you know, yep. we're in the midst of a pandemic that a hundred years ago, you know, so right. there's, and we are, it's, 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 people are quick to forget. And I think that's not necessarily bad. I think there's a point in time where we can say, should we be privileging some kind of like desire, whatever the desire is to keep everything forever <laughs> over the needs of an actual living group of human beings now, so that's what I would worry is like there these belongings in particular Remy Patrician aren't they are needed mm. right now for a lot of reasons. And so that's more important, I think. Right. 
than keeping things just to be able to tell. And of course, you can tell stories a thousand different ways. And I think the actual NMNH and then also the NMAI, the National Museum of American of the American Indian, which is just across the street from the NMNH in on the mall in DC, is doing a lot of that storytelling through contemporary art and purchasing new work, et cetera, et cetera. Right. By Native Americans. So yeah. Yeah, and and like I agree. I, I think the what I would want to keep is the record of so here's how we got it, here's what we called it, and here's when it went back to where it should be, right? Like a file that's sort of complete with all that information so that, you know, historians in the future can recognize what this whole process was. I, I would hate that, I would hate to think that sort of the Smithsonian's history of that object would, would go away as the object is placed back in its proper place. As you said, that's double erasure. But then it also makes me wonder that for as much as these this this process is very colonial at the same time if we go back to the start when mentioned how the smithsonian almost gave legitimacy to the state and say here we are the united states we have this great history does the removal of objects or things from that database does that almost serve as a double erasure too in that the the museum would have to or would want to presumably have objects from indigenous peoples throughout the United States because they are part of the country. The the land, of course, existed and people were there long before the United States as a political entity existed. So to tell the history of this place, you need those objects at the same time. It's sort of this. I, I don't know if that counts as a like a catch twenty two or a double edged sword, but it, it seems like there's there has to be a place for objects like this within that collection i i think there is i mean i think there is all we need to do is turn the power to describe and to present over right and it now it no longer can be in the hands of people like me or like white settlers or white curators or you know it, it really can't and i think that's that's really what we're talking about because ultimately this will all go away one day. These these databases won't last on their you know magnetic tape forever, right, yeah. and we're not going. To, I mean, and and you know museums will burn down, and you know I really am. I do as much as I study preservation. I'm kind of a, a nihilist about it, I guess. And I think um, what will remain is human relationships. So that's the most important thing. And I think to return power to the extent that we can do that um, is the focus we should be sort of looking at. So there's, a, I mean, there's tons of examples of community run institutions, any community, right, run institutions where people are presenting material and objects and histories for themselves by themselves. And that seems to be the most important thing. Right. Um, too, I think. Yeah. So I think, of, you know, the Haida Gwaii, Haida Heritage Center in Haida Gwaii is one of these kinds of places. Um, and there are, are are many, and I, I believe the um, National Museum of American Indian also kind of fulfills that. But there are so many, right. um, so that to me is the most important thing. It basically, it's like we don't have that renegotiation of power yet, mm -hmm. as you probably know. Yep. So until that happens, we'll see. But there's also great like, yeah, indigenous curators presenting really interesting stuff and adding stuff to collections all over. So that's kind of, I think, the thing. Right. So, you know, in, in your experience, I mean, obviously, as part of this project, you you went to the Smithsonian, you you did all this research to to see about the institution's history. And I have to say, I, I've only been to 
uh, one Smithsonian Museum once, I think. Maybe it was two. Uh, I went to the culture. I, I always forget the names, but the, the one where Archie Bunker's chair is, that's where I went. Um, oh, I think the American history, probably. Yeah, so uh, yeah. And I was just really excited to see Archie Bunker's chair. Uh, oh. <laughs> but, but you know, for, for people who might be visiting these these places, how do you think the book will influence their relationship with the actual exhibits and, and how they interact with that space? And, and what do you think people can take away from this book to better understand potential visits, not just to the Smithsonian, but museums in general? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. I haven't actually thought about that. <laughs> I guess it would be to question everything. Um, so a couple of things. The, Na the National Museum of Natural History, which is where I really focused, is, is really the sort of like grand daughter of the United States National Museum, which is that first institution. And so it's important to know that that was sort of the original institution. It holds the original collections. And all of these other Smithsonian institutions have come out since then and been sort of siphoned off. So there's air and space, and then there's art. You know, there's all these kinds of different institutions. So that core, the NMNH, has an, a large ethnographic, what you would say, anthropological collection. But that's not often on display because what gets on display in natural history is dinosaurs. <laughs> so you have a very different sort of disconnect between that collection, the history of the anthropology collection, and what you actually see in that institution. Right. Um, but I will say I haven't been there in a, a while now. Um, and there's a few great curators working on contemporary um, anthropological projects that are getting exhibition space, and that's very exciting. So there's, I think, a curatorial show on cell phones and technology and how humans interact with them. So in some ways, you're not going to see the traditional ethnographic displays um, at the Smithsonian that really I'm talking about in the book, or at least the collections that I'm talking about in the book. So it's kind of funny to think of it that way. You, you'd probably be better off going to see the actual collections, which are, you know, if you're doing research, which are held in Suitland, Maryland, about an hour away <laughs> from the institution. Um, but other institutions, I think, you know, they do do a lot of places are sort of engaging with this idea of, of documentation and um, what it means and sort of contextualizing the knowledge that they have, like how they came to know these things. And I've seen a few exhibits that sort of tackle that, whether by showing the original card catalog, for example, along with the object, or showing the tags um, to sort of contextualize that, hey, this comes from a particular way of, of collecting that we don't do anymore or that we're, we're trying to interrogate. So I just, I just hope people look at a, a museum exhibit or a group of objects or like even read about it and think and just question why that's there, I think. That's the main thing. Why and how? And how did right. this happen? And what what does that mean? Why not other things? Why? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, again, it's almost how I end most of my courses by telling all the students, always be critical. Think of why things exist. And uh, especially in the, the case of popular culture, why was this thing created? What was it trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. And you're right. It's the same thing with museums, for sure. And I think the really important thing, I guess, um, about that is really this is a book about like classification and taxonomies, right? It's how do we get these naming structures that seem to be so natural to our world? Right. Um, and how can we, you know, what does that mean? 
question, <laughs> basically. Right. I, I'm not sure I have an answer for any of those things. But I think um, really if you start reading through that sort of history of classification to understand that, you know, what counts as something for one person or one community or group or, um, you know, oppressor does not count as something for everyone else. And so I think it's really important to think about that as an individual and think about how your worldview and what you think of as a normal classification of, you know, being, non-being, living thing, animal, human, how those things impact like your daily life and everything and how they're different for people as well. Right. And that that was eye-opening for me when I learned those things. So I hope that comes across. Yeah. And, and we certainly encourage everybody to go check out the book. Again, it is Cataloging Culture, Legacies of Colonialism in Museum Documentation. Hannah, where can people find it? They can find it on the UBC Press website, and there's a there's a PDF and an e-publication and then a hardcover, and paperback should be out sometime in the spring. So there's a few different options there. You can also find it on University of Chicago Press website, the American distributor. And yeah, and my website, hannahtrnr.com, <laughs> has a link. So, um, Or just follow me on Twitter at hannahtrnr, Hannah Turner. Awesome. And and hopefully yeah, that when the paperback comes out, the pandemic will be over and you can have a, a paperback Listen. big party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's hope the pandemic is over sometime. <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> that would be that would be swell. Yeah. The end of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. We're all we're all rooting for that. Hannah Turner, yeah, uh, congratulations on the book and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for the invitation. This was wonderful. There you have it. My conversation with Hannah Turner. My thanks to her for joining me. And again, the book is Cataloging Culture, Legacies of Colonialism in Museum Documentation. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. Please, if you have not yet, subscribe to the show. Wherever it is you get your podcasts, give us the likes, ratings, all that stuff keeps the show going, lets us grow as well and also if you have ideas for what you would like to hear on the show please do get in touch history slam at gmail.com or you can get in touch with me on twitter at the sean graham and of course do head over to activehistory.ca a lot of great stuff over there on the site even in the midst of summer there's still really uh, wonderful material over there so we'll be back with you with a, a new episode again next week but until then if you're out and you see enrico palazzo Please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.